From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 141 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, as always, and we got a fun show. We we just spent an hour, like, tuning up the show. <laughs> I know, the, pre, the pre-show, the pre which, by the way, we will do live again in January. Look for a coming announcement. Yay. But, gents, as we're, as we're doing, getting gearing back up, what did you do on Cyber Monday? Did you spend it buying things or just unsubscribing for lists you'd forgotten you were on? <laughs> I, I did... A little buying, but I mostly unsubscribed from the lists because it was like, wait, why am I getting an offer from Coles? Are they still in business? <laughs> Click. <laughs> See, I will say uh, I did note a very serious uptick in the frequency of all of the advertising going on on Cyber Monday. Uh, normally one a day that you get from all of these lists. And it's easy to forget that you've subscribed to those things, right? Uh I got like 14 from each of them on Cyber Monday. But what I will say I did, I did not purchase. I went back in and verified, you know, something that I purchased recently, a new piece of technology. And then, oh, special Cyber Monday or Black Friday deals. The price was exactly the same. I was like, this stuff has lost all of its cachet. I don't need to show up on that day. I was a bad consumer. I did no <laughs> sales. I did none of it. I like the only Black Friday thing I did was the Black Friday drinking stout tasting that they nice. broke out this the dark beers at the brewery, called it Black Friday because the black beers were out. That right. was it. Like I didn't do any extra shopping. I didn't do any deals. And I, by the way, was so offline for the weekend, I didn't even look at my email on that stuff. And I just did a mass deletion on Monday, so I didn't even bother. So is this uh, is this a fading uh, thing? This uh, Black Friday? The stats say it. The the number, all the shopping numbers are actually down on most across most retailers. So we'll see. I think it's become more of a season of savings because they started all the deals in October. We'll see. Oh, yeah. Now they stretch it out for a month, right? But see, uh, yeah. Target, Target's year-over-year sales were up a little bit, and they were closed on Thursday. So that's a good thing. That is yeah, exactly. Thing. Thank you very much, Target. Let's get all the other retailers to sign on. <laughs> well, in the spirit of consumerism, did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospects calls a month's worth of the business of tech or building an entire Lego Death Star. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting automation, automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicated to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at gazinta.com. That's G-O-Z-Y-N-T-A dot com. And just a gratuitous free shout out to the folks at Gazinta. Heather Johnson from Gazinta has been volunteering uh, and doing an amazing amount of work for the National Society of IT Service Providers. And I think she attends five hours of meetings a week and (laughs) is going way above and beyond. So uh, if you've thought about doing business with them, go ahead and check it out. 
our first topic today is a little complicated, so I want to sort of... Walk us through, Carl. Walk us through. <laughs> step through it as quickly as I can. So starting about in August, China broke into some computers in, in Israel and made it look like they were be, being attacked by Iran. So then Iran started, you know, attacking the Israeli computers and then FireEye and organization that looks into these things, started investigating it and discovered that it was Chinese hackers. The UNC-215 is the name of the group. And this happens shortly after China had made billions of dollars of investments in Israeli tech companies. So it's not clear exactly what they're trying to get out of this. But now you have China is attacking both of them, both Israel and Iran, and flagging it as being from each other. So they're basically trying to start trouble between the two of them. In the meantime, Iran is actually attacking <laughs> some elements of the uh, Israeli government and society and breaking into things like dating apps. Uh, uh, Iran is mucking around with Israeli technology. And this isn't just like government against government. They're dealing with things like the fuel supply and the water supply, and it gets really bad really fast. And essentially, it's destabilizing two governments, and it's not clear what China is going to get out of it, but they're doing it on purpose. Um, and they're actually, you know, sort of goading these two countries into fighting each other, and their citizens are taking the, the, the brunt of the damage, basically. It's, I mean, this is, this is a multi-layered brutal story. And I mean, and, and I mean, I've, I've shaked my fist at the cloud on this one in that we are not reporting on cyber incidents effectively at all from a media perspective to convey what is happening and the virtual nature of it is abstracting too much of it for, for many citizens, business owners but more importantly, the, the, the fact that it just ends up with these abstract concepts resulting in real world direct consequences that are, are hurting people, fuel problems. We've seen them, of course, in the U.S., outages at, at hospitals. I mean, these are the water line. I mean, these, these things are real warfare stuff. If it was caused by an explosion that caused that thing, we'd be reporting about this entirely differently. The more yes. importantly... The other thing that really bothers on me on this is that we really need to push leaders to build the rules of engagement of what cyber warfare looks like, because it's a thing, right? It's actually happening. But while war is a bad, big bad thing, right? We can all agree on that. But on top of that, we know it's violent, but there are actual ways that like we have thought about the way the rules of war happen because it does happen. We recognize it as countries and thus there's certain norms and such. And we have not done that with cyber. And so thus anybody can do anything right now and particularly because it's an abstract, it's causing just chaos. Well, and, and that's the thing is it is entirely at the guerrilla warfare stage and that gives an unbelievable amount of chaos to small players who can naturally kind of compete with the very, very large players. Uh, this, this is a problem that I think brings into sharp relief the job description of people who do cybersecurity, business continuity, data protection for a living. 
right? It's really easy for us to look at our stuff and go, well, whatever. You lost a few passwords. You, you had some data that was published online. That might minimally affect your brand. It might disrupt your, your business operations for a little bit. But hey, we'll get your systems back up and running uh, very, very quickly. As you say, Dave, uh, in the conventional warfare world, there are rules like who is actually recognized as a combatant who wears a uniform and is identifiable as a participant and everybody else is off limits. It's not cool to go out and intentionally inflict damage on non-combatants in the process. Well, those are the centerpiece of the targets. That's where the soft targets are. And they're not just accidentally collateral damage affecting the people they are targeting the people who are least likely to have capabilities. You don't need to be one of the quote-unquote superpowers, the prototypical guy in his mom's basement with a high-speed internet connection can cause some radical disruption. And when you multiply that by nation-state budgets and technology capabilities, I, I find that this, this should bring it back to us who do these things for a living uh, we're not kidding around here anymore. This is no longer just a, yeah, cybersecurity, that's an issue. We should pay attention. Well, but by the way, this is a every, big deal. Everything we talk about from a cybersecurity perspective is often defensive. I believe, in my heart of hearts, that the United States government has a cyber offensive capability. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. We all, by the way, we all know that it exists. Has anyone actually talked about it? Does it have a name? Because, by the way, I talk, did an editorial about SEAL Team 6. We know about SEAL Team 6. We all know about those guys, those the badasses that went out and took out. Why are we not, like, this is where there's a failure of communications also on the offensive side, because we just talk all about the defenses, but we don't talk about the offensive capability and link to consequences. Like, the, the some of this is, is the, there are consequences. Right. If you blow well, something up physically in the United States, there's a direct consequence. I want to see actions from this to actually set a precedent of, look, we have offensive capability. We're not going to be quiet about it all the two. We know all these other people are running around. And we need to, people need to be more educated because, you know, there, there is a difference. Like when you say 16% of the people in Israel have had their private data posted up, you know, publicly, uh, you know, that's one thing. And it's sort of sounds like cybery stuff. When you say the supply chain, the fuel supply chain for the country of Iran was disrupted for a week, uh, that sounds a little more like war. And people, first of all, there, this isn't widely reported. I mean, there's like a story in the New York Times and there's a couple here and there, but it's not like in the news every day the way it would be, as Dave says, if they dropped a bomb on the fuel supply, it would be in the news every day, well, <laughs> at least for a while. By the way, um, we abstract this. The United States fuel supply was disrupted for like three days this summer, everybody. Like, I mean, let's not just gloss on oh, what if it happens here. It has happened here. It did happen. This exact thing happened. It did happen. See, and, and, and this is where this is where you have to question not only technique but motive. The question is, if we are doing these things, and we know we again we we know that the other guys are doing this. We assume that we are doing this. Why are we not publicizing it? 
I think it's because people still think, well, as long as there's no rules and I can't be identified as the one who perpetrated that crime against humanity, I can get away with stuff and I can be way more nefarious than I might otherwise be in polite society with agreed upon rules. It's just way too underground at this point. And and I feel like there aren't really... I mean, there are sides to every one of these conversations, but there's not really any good guys and bad guys. It's all people sneaking around yeah. and not doing the right thing. So I'll close by going, Ryan, maybe and we should have another debate on this because the videos of, of hackers living in Russia doing donuts of Lamborghinis in in the middle of uh, uh, doesn't tell me that they're exactly low profile, but. Out of time for today. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I wish I could do donuts in a Lamborghini. Dang it. Uh, but instead, I'm going to talk about robots. We co- we keep coming back to this topic in a number of ways here in, in the Killing It world. And it continues to fascinate not only from just a tech hobbyist point of view, but also from a commercial application point of view. The, the story that we're linking to here today is actually focused on uh, – We all live in the labor shortage, great resignation reality of of today's business environment. And so uh, some people are wondering, well, can the robots solve the problem? In other words, while Amazon is out there busily trying to temporarily employ every single citizen of America in their warehouses and churning through them at a rapid rate, could we actually eliminate the humans and just have robots do the job. And so far, what we're finding is no, and for one really compelling reason, which is uh, not everything goes according to plan, and robots don't improvise. They don't have the ability to figure it out when things go just a little bit haywire. And that seems to be an essential human characteristic. So as you guys are looking at not just this story, but robots taking over people's jobs, Do you fear for your job security? And uh, do you think that we are on the edge of the machine automation? No. Well, (laughs) robots robots can't be pundits. So (laughs) I I literally was just sort of quipping to that is is having bad opinions. Well, maybe. I mean, robots can have bad opinions. Uh, The nuanced ones, maybe not so much. I, I mean... The, the, answer, the answer to that is, is I don't think a lot of the knowledge work stuff, the advanced stuff that I, that I tend to spend most of my time on uh, will get displaced. Now, I will admit that, you know, I am seeing more and more injection of AI into what I do. I freely admit I'm now a Grammarly user um, because I want the, I like the editor. I actually like the editor. It's trying, it's helping me not use the same word over and over again. Uh, <laughs> I use good a little too much. Um, oh. And so, you know, that, that, that automated editor is helping, but that's an augmentation, not a disruption. I, I continue to believe that a lot of these technologies move things around, uh, but that does, we do need to be careful of at the lower level sophistication of the job that moving it around can be displacing. I think that this is, uh, and particularly the article that we're pointing to, I think it's mostly good news. I think it's good news because I think we're seeing robots be adopted at a pace that is tolerable, that is consistent with moving the workforce to uh, doing uh, more of the jobs that are safe and less repetitive and letting the robots do the jobs that are unsafe and more repetitive. Um, I think it's all good. I, I love the stat in the middle of this article about uh, that, you know, this package sorting device 
needs to have human intervention seven times an hour. Well, that's pretty significant, <laughs> right? It's sort of like, all right, we're gonna turn over most of the work to you, maybe 90% of the work, but you know, there's still gotta be a person there who isn't doing a massive amount of repetitive, hard labor that's you know bad for the back and whatever, um, but yet they've got a job. And I, th I think that mix is good, especially in the current, you know, great uh, resignation <laughs> environment. Well, and Dave, I like the way you're describing it, because if we think of a robot as a tool, as opposed to a replacement for a human, the idea is every technology that has ever existed in human history was designed and applied for the function of allowing fewer humans to produce more work right? Instead of carrying rocks up the hill, I put them in a wheelbarrow. And now one guy can move what 20 guys used to be responsible for. Now, if we can do that in factory, warehouse, other types of physical labor environments, one human person who can adapt and improvise, who can recognize, whoops, that machine just messed up and I need to go in and give it corrective action. Well, I can do that 20 times more. I can create more work with a single human laborer. Productivity goes up without necessarily eliminating the jobs of those individuals. I, I think what I took away from this, this whole um, analysis, and it's something that I see more and more, no matter how smart we think we are, you cannot program improvisation into a robot. They will follow a set of instructions and no one has enough insight to be able to write a completely inclusive set of instructions. There will always be a weird thing. There will always be a black swan. There will be something that makes us all go, oh, huh, I didn't anticipate that. Because if we could <laughs> anticipate those things, we would have all invested all of our life savings in cryptocurrency two years ago, right? You can't predict the future. You have to be able to react to these things. And so robots are a tool not a replacement for the humans. Right. And, you know, even like with mechanics, auto mechanics or anything else, we have more and more sophisticated tools all the time, but they just make it easier to be a really good mechanic. And I think that's the way we ultimately need to look at robots. I do have to say, again, I, I think it's good that we're not seeing this huge backlash that everybody feared, like, oh, my God, all of our jobs are going to be lost to the robots. There's a little of that, but I think people are clearly seeing... No, the robots are doing their thing and we're going to do our thing and it's good. I think this is a great period of transition. It's also a great period of transition for AI because we only need AI to be smart enough to do the one job in front of it. We don't need it to take over the world and make all the decisions and explode all the nuclear bombs. We, we really, that's a, really that's a don't fair need statement. it to do that. <laughs> we really don't need it to do that. I'm kind of okay with it not doing those things. <laughs> I mean, it's... It, it, It'll be interesting to see how that how that. I mean, I I am a big believer in the augmentation. Like if 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 that's the philosophy, and if it augments on jobs, I think it will be a good thing. I also will couple that with with all of my thinking around moving away from time based work to task based work. Uh, and if we can do that more and more across all jobs, uh, that's a good thing, right? Even even if you get all the way down to this kind of manual labor type stuff where you're having people having to do less of that or, or the, or even like the sorting jobs and those kinds of things where it's task-based more than time-based. We get more toward that world. I think that's a good thing across the board. Yep. And, and that's true. Even in those 
manual labor entry level jobs, right? As you're describing, Dave, there, there are tools that enhance knowledge work, right? You know, every one of us that's ever been in the MSP world, we use quote unquote robots all the time, RMMs, PSAs, pieces of software that automate tasks that we used to do with manual labor. We can augment at the, at the thinking level but we can also significantly augment at the physical labor level. So I think it kind of crosses the spectrum. Well, so let me move on. Let me move on to to topic number three. Uh, This is one that I'm just absolutely fascinated by. So Amazon in what is something of a surprise announcement at their re-event event came out with uh, Amazon private 5G or AWS private 5G. Amazon will, for you, provision a private mobile network where they will handle all of the all of the devices for it, all of the components that you need in terms of towers and provisioning and all of that kind of stuff, the SIM cards, the whole thing. You just specify what you need from a location perspective, and they will take care of it. And their pricing model is based on bandwidth, not on devices. So you just pay for the bandwidth that you use pay as you go. Now, the use the big the big use case here, of course, is enterprise. The idea is if you're an, an enterprise and you need to cover a different kind of geography with uh, networking that you want to make sure that you've got control over from an enterprise perspective, you can now deploy this where you might have used Wi-Fi before. Now you can use 5G based on the fact that it's similar or better speeds, longer range, uh, and much more blanketed of that, but still have some level of control over that. But by the way, Amazon is including all the stuff you need, the device, all of the back-end infrastructure management. They're just going to take care of that for you. Guys, I read this, saw this, saw this stuff, talked about it on Business Attack because I was like, this is a game changer. This is a completely different way of thinking about network deployments. What say you? I think it's amazing that we've got to the point where not only is software eating the world, right? But it's eating the entire hardware market. Like they're just going to give you the hardware, like the devices, the the setup, the servers, the uh, uh, APIs. It's like that's impressive, right? That suggests that they, they they're not selling this into a business with twelve people. Right? No, no <laughs> this, is, this is intended for the big warehouse on the edge of town, which oddly enough is run by Amazon. So, you know, my guess is that they are doing this for themselves first. It's it's almost like how Amazon got to to be in the cloud business in the first place. Amazon needs exactly as much capacity as it takes to not have a pause on the two weeks before Christmas, right? So the two weeks after Christmas, now they got all this capacity, which they sell off as cloud services. Uh, I think this is a similar thing. They developed this as a way to dramatically reduce the cost of wiring up a warehouse with a thousand devices and then a million uh, wireless devices. And so what the hell? Once they've developed it, why not make money on it? Well, see, as another corollary to that exact example, I was reading something over the weekend that was talking about how either by the time we get to through the Christmas season this year or by Prime Day next spring, by one of those two milestones, Amazon will officially arrive at being the largest package delivery service in the world. 
in 2013, you guys will remember, there was a, a bad Christmas, right? The Lots of us ordered things from Amazon and it was shipped through FedEx and UPS and a million or so of those packages just didn't show up in time for the holiday. Amazon took the black eye for that, right? Like I ordered it from you and you ruined my holiday. My child is devastated. And Amazon did what Amazon does. They said, you know what? Instead of trying to negotiate a better service from somebody else, well, by God, let's just build our own. And so they said, as of now, eight years later, literally eight years later, they went from being a consumer of other people's package delivery services to a point where they own 45,000 semis, 30,000 delivery vans, 750 aircraft, and employ something like 600,000 people in running the largest shipping business on the planet. That model works. I agree with you, Carl. I think that they looked at their own warehouses and went, wow, wireless connectivity at the bandwidth we need, especially back to our second story, if we're going to automate as much of this stuff with smart devices and robots as possible, we're going to kill our profit margin if we're paying somebody else to provide the service. So fine, let's just do it on our own. I look at this as, I mean, I, I grew up in, I worked for a while in the networking side of the cable industry, and I've been in telecommunications. I look at this not just as displacing a network systems integrator at the enterprise level, but now starting to compete head to head with municipal service providers. Uh, think of use cases around smart cities, university campuses, large uh, technology business office parks. Uh, if I can just make a phone call and somebody will set this up and I can consume it without waiting for one of those big three logos that currently builds all the wireless infrastructure. If I don't got to wait for them to build it out in my town, I can just have it on my campus. So, I'm going to do that tomorrow. Let me link it to that because this is where my head was at on that. I'm going to you thought about it from the sort of the carrier side. I'm going to think about it from the network engineer or a network management side. So if I'm a, and I'm, let's put our enterprise hats on for a moment. I know I'm around a massive enterprise or a large organization, that university, that facility. And I normally build out my network or my, you know, I've got, I want to manage all my manufacturing plants and I've got all this space. I might have built previously a private Wi-Fi network that has to have tons of devices and I have Wi-Fi reliability problems and I need a ton of access points. Well, now I could probably, now I'm gonna build my network out where I'm going to roll out 5G instead and just do it that way. And that makes perfect sense for me. If I'm, it, it changes the way I design my network, right? Say, say, because in a way, I mean, if, if I think this all out, like a 5G, I'm just coming out over a cellular network. I may be external quote unquote, external to the firewall, the way that I'm building that network out, that way of thinking is what I'm walking away saying, yeah, this is where network design is going to change. And where I link it back to the smaller companies is what you should expect to see in SMB is, I may not build out a network. I may just put everything on 5G, just like I may not build out an app anymore and I'll use SaaS or I'll use cloud in SMB, whereas an enterprise might use private cloud, the parallels go the same way. If I'm in SMB, now I will not only use cloud and SaaS, I may not build a network. I might just put devices out on 5G. That looks very, very different. It's kind of appealing at a certain level of simplicity, right? I just have a device, it's out on 5G, I'm just good. And I collect out to the cloud and then I've eliminated, by the way, there are many listeners who probably go, 
but you just eliminated everything that I manage. Yes, I just did. Right. And so, and that's why, you know, like, except not, I mean, think about, right. Like on one hand, I could start a business deploying these things because Amazon is going to ship them to you. They will show up in boxes on your doorstep with a set of Ikea instructions and somebody has to actually build that network, right? So you could be in the business of building those networks. Once you build a couple of them, now you know how it's done. And even though Amazon isn't going to serve a 12 user uh, environment, you now know how (laughs) and you know which pieces go where and, and what the order is and so forth and so on. So I think it has huge potential. And you know, the promise of 5G for the last 10 years, more or less, has been that we eliminate the wires, right? If, if this thing, you know, a slow 5G will, will get you 750, uh, you know, gig, why have, or a meg, why have a, a gigabit uh, internet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's pretty amazing. The other thing is it really points out that 5G is useful and necessary in smaller environments, right? And so to the, the point about the carriers, the carriers are loving their their good 4G and they're doing everything to keep the government from forcing them to put 5G all over Wyoming and Utah, and Nevada, right? Where it's just impractical. Um, and this may forestall that a bit, right? That, that maybe we can keep the 4G standard, which is practical and stave off the 5G uh, as something that's just, unless you're gonna have uh, a billion uh, antennas across the desert, uh, it's just not going to happen in a lot of the country. See, I, that's exactly where this practical reality comes to. It could take us a couple of billion trillion dollars to build out that infrastructure and get that that universal ultra wideband 5G capability to everybody. And in the real world, we all know that's literally never going to happen. I mean, we still have a government standard that defines high-speed internet for coverage of citizens at 25 meg down, right? We're never going to get to that 5G ubiquitous coverage capabilities. But if we can do it in what we will call municipal hotspots, right, you know, not just a building that happens to be covered by this capability, but a neighborhood or a segment of town, if you can get to that level... Uh, I really want to be in the business of systems integration. If I sell Cisco, Juniper, Mist, yada, yada, yada. If I sell that gear, uh, I better be an AWS channel partner Mm -hmm. as well as soon as possible because these boys are coming and uh, they just displaced FedEx (laughs) in FedEx's backyard. So don't kid yourself. Well, that's that's why it's interesting, and that's why I brought it up because I just look and say like, "There's the them, there's the future." <laughs> <laughs> lots of lots of potential money here. We want to hear from you. What do you think is the future of five G, and how are you going to make money on it? And if you like this podcast, tell all your friends. Uh, give us a review. Give us a thumbs up. We really appreciate that, and we uh, thank you for spreading the word. Sadly, that will do it for episode one forty one of the Killing It. Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.